0: Well, this morning we have a, a rather, um, my gosh, I have to just say it, a touchy subject, one that uh, is always difficult to talk about in this kind of a setting, but one that I think is absolutely and positively vital for all of us, but most especially young people. And so actually I asked Vince to have His youth group in here because Vince is actually going to be doing a whole uh, project with them on love and relationships and the like. And so this might be a good foundation upon which Vince can build uh, more teaching for our young folks. But this is this is something that is so important that Paul, the apostle, believed it necessary in all of the encouragement, the wonderful encouragement that we have heard him giving to this church in Thessalonica. He wanted to take special care to speak to them on this subject and so I'm here this morning to speak to you on it. I entitled the the Bible study Vessels of Honor and we're going to be studying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in the first 12 verses. Now imagine this scene. Imagine living in a city and in a culture that has no real boundaries regarding sexual expression. While marriage is an institution there, it's not considered an exclusive relationship regarding sex. Men of all ages are frequenting prostitutes of both sexes. Homosexuality is widely accepted. Women and young men ply their trade as prostitutes. And it's both legal and it's taxed by the government. Sex is incorporated into the very religious practices of the place. And uh, this is typified by the Temple of Aphrodite that's just a, a, a several kilometers away. Uh, where they employ a thousand temple prostitutes to assist in worship. Extramarital affairs are so common as not to even be seen to be considered affairs. And all of this is done without troubling one's conscience and without creating public scandal. It's considered normal and, in some cases, necessary to have a life in their sexuality in that manner. Now this is a a description of first century Greece. And Thessalonica was squarely in the midst of that environment. And in the midst of that, all of that going on, Paul comes and he plants this church. And the Christian faith that he brought to these people in so many ways was revolutionary. And most especially, it was revolutionary in its doctrine concerning sexuality. For the most part... Christianity, for the first time, brought into the lives of Gentile people the notion that God commands that sex be practiced only in the bounds of marriage, and that sexual activity outside of marriage is displeasing to God. Culturally, socially, religiously, this went against everything that first century Grecian people were all about, everything that they felt, they believed, and they practiced, was contrary to that. And so I want you to understand as we go through this lesson that that opening description I gave you of this city in the first century Roman Empire but in the in the country of Greece is very much like our our our, our situation today. What I described there could very easily just be overlaid over our culture. The things that we see going on right now Uh, we would have never imagined 10, 20, 30 years ago. Homosexuality and the gay agenda has reached a level of legitimacy that no one would have imagined a very short time ago. Sexual permissiveness is so established that your 15-year-old daughter can go and get sex counseling and birth control and you never even are told one word. Goodness gracious, we have young people who are having their bodies altered, because they have some notion that they may be a gender that's different from their biology. And these are things that are happening to young people, notwithstanding the protests of parents. We have clearly gone even further down the track than our, than our um, predecessors in first century Rome. And of course, all of our entertainment is, is proposing and, and promoting this. Most of the entertainment that's out there features premarital sex, affairs of all kinds, sexual violence of all kinds. In some respects, it's even glorified. And at the same time, we have all these, the, these very public and very uh, intense uh, programs and, and, um, and uh, things that, that happen on the internet that people can access with just a few clicks of the mouse. And so we have have a society that's very much the same as what Paul was addressing in the first century. And out of Paul's deep concern for these new believers in Thessalonica, who lived in the midst of such sexual permissiveness, Paul uses the beginning of this chapter, chapter four, to remind them and to exhort them to maintain sexual purity. His encouragement is based upon several things that we'll see in, in the passage, the purpose that we have to please God, the plan that God has for our lives to purify and sanctify the people of God, our calling to be separated from the world and, and to be a beacon of light around the people, the people around us. And so we're going to have a very frank discussion this morning from this passage. We're going to talk about how God's design and intention for sex is very different from the way in which it's practiced in the world. We're gonna discuss why sexual purity is so important to God. And we're going to look into how we as a people of God can be vessels of honor in the midst of a world that is very much different from what the Lord would command in our lives. So if you would, please stand with me now. We're gonna read the first eight verses and we'll spend most of our time with those verses. Later in the Bible study, we'll pick up verses nine through 12. Everybody okay so far? Okay. If, uh, if, if you're troubled, throw something at me or whatever. But. Okay, here we go. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you are received from us, how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, that is one's own body, in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner, Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but rejects God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God, this is is a very, very difficult uh, area, Lord. And it is something that the enemy has found a stronghold in our society. And the enemy brings at us in every manner conceivable the temptations and the draws into darkness. And and these things have overtaken the lives of so many people who who have been in bondage to the very thing that you've given us to glorify and honor you. And so, Father, this morning, I pray, God, as we make our way through these topics, Lord, that you would guard my heart and my lips, Lord, That you would guard the hearts and the lips of the people in this room, Lord. That nothing that would be said would be a trigger for them. Nothing that would be said, Lord, would dishonor or misrepresent the precious truth of your word. So be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, what I'm going to do, as I often do with these kind of things, is I want to take you to the foundations. Um, Because I think so often we, we don't think in terms of why do we even have this capacity in our lives? Why did God even put that sort of thing in us in the first place? Now, Paul wants these folks to know um, why God is so concerned with, why God finds it so important, what we do with our bodies vis-a-vis other people, okay? And so you, you see it right through those eight verses we just read. Uh, in verse one, he's talking about our purpose. We exist to please God. In verse two, he reminds us that God has given us certain commandments and when we keep those, we're pleasing to God. In verse three, he tells us that one of those commandments is that the will of God is that we abstain from sexual immorality and we're gonna talk about what that encompasses. In verse four, he reminds us that we need to possess our vessel, that is our bodies. This is our vessel, okay? We need to possess it in sanctification and honor. In the fifth verse, he tells us that we are called to abstain from passion of lust. If you have the old King James, the word that's used there is concupiscence. You don't see that word much anymore. But concupiscence means that kind of overwhelming, driving lust that people can have. Um, In verse 6, he tells us not to defraud another in the way of sexuality. We're going to talk about what that means. In verse 7, he told us that God considers this behavior this unclean behavior, to be unholy and unclean. And then finally, in verse 8, he's telling us that to engage in sexual immorality is to engage in behavior as if you despise or deny God. And so obviously, just those eight verses just lay the hammer down. They lay down the gauntlet that this is a big deal. As much as our society makes so little of it, so light of it, and even we can be drawn in in the way we might dress, and the things we might say, the little innuendos we might say in our speech, this sort of stuff, it's, 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 it's really pervasive and it's really uh, all over the place. So let's talk about the bases of, uh, upon which our sexuality rests. First of all, we go to Genesis 1. We just completed our study in the book of Genesis. And what you see very clearly in those first chapters of Genesis is a concept that has been a running theme for me throughout my my, uh, saved life, and that is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Very often, the way we relate to God, it's almost like we're peers. It's almost like we get a say. It's almost like it's all about us, and none of that is true. In the beginning, God created man... In his image, in God's image, and he he gave us a purpose. Our purpose is to glorify him. We are part of the creation that cries out that there is a God. And we are the capstone of that creation. To behold a human being who is walking with God is to, to get an understanding of the greatness of God in a way that nothing else in creation portrays. We're created for his good pleasure. We're created to worship him, as we just did. We're created to have fellowship with him. This was what he desired when he created man, to have fellowship together, that he could walk in the garden, that they they could have conversation, that God could pour into man so that he would become, in his time on earth, he would become more and more like God. We're called to glorify him by keeping his commandments. This is why I say it's all about God. It is not about us. Some people who I've heard, atheists who have criticized God, have called him egotistical in the extreme. There is no such thing as egotistical when you're God. I can be egotistical in your eyes if I promote myself over you in some uh, fashion because we are peers. But when we speak about the almighty God who created us and didn't have to, there's no such thing as being egotistical. Psalm 100, verse 3, states it very clearly. Know that the Lord, he is God. It's almost as if to say, no, he's God, and no, you're not. <laughs> know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And so clearly we exist for him, for his purpose, for his com- for His pleasure, and we Please him when we keep his commandments. Now we move on to chapter 2 of Genesis. And God has created woman. God had this perfect union between God and man. But now he saw fit to create woman. He creates woman so that man will be, will, will be uh, in perfect union with one like him yet so different. And we know that he created Eve in a way that was very unique to all of the rest of creation in that he took that from a creature, man, he took from the man a rib and fashioned the woman. And you've often heard the old saying, he didn't take anything from Adam's feet so that the woman wouldn't be under him. He didn't take anything from Adam's head because there was nothing in there anyway. He didn't, <laughs> he, did, he took it from it. No, nah, I'm just kidding. Just a little man joke, sorry. Uh, no, he, he took her his rib that it might be clear that the woman is beside the man and what god is doing by taking a rib from man to fashion woman is to say that they are going to have the kind of unity that god created in the in the outset between god and man and that now god and humanity have unity with god but Man and woman have unity and oneness. And if you would, just if you can, I can just read it to you. It's Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. After God has has fashioned this woman out of a part of Adam's body, Adam exclaims this. But he's really speaking on behalf of God. He says, Adam said, this is now bone. He's looking at the woman. He's saying, this is now bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and he shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. You see you see the holiness, the sanctity of that, that, that here is now this, this union that God has made possible in a way that, that stands out from all of the manner in which he created everything else. And Adam says it very clearly. He sees what God is doing, and he now understands in God's eyes, we are one. We are one thing. In fact, that was actually the little theme of the marriage that Michelle, the wedding that Michelle and I had was the two shall become one. And, um, and this is what God desires. Now, now, here we have man and woman. And God gives to man and woman something that becomes very, very special. Something that God gives us that is, that is his plan for procreation. His way in which a, a married couple can express love. And a thing, a, a, an activity, a, a time together that, that would bring great joy and enjoyment to them. And of course I'm talking about sex. Now, there are two signature things that we relate to God and especially to God. And that is creating things and loving and God gave humankind two great directives. He said to have dominion over the earth and to be fruitful and to multiply. And God allows us to participate with him in the creative process and in the midst of love by giving us this, this institution of sex. And he allows men and women to come together and enjoy this gift because it allows us to understand in a way that that nothing else quite matches in terms of the unity between two beings and the aspects of that unity, Uh, intimacy, sacrificial love. These are things that we come to know better in the context of marriage so that we might understand better what the Lord has has, uh, created between us and him. And, uh, and this love that Christ has for the church, Paul the Apostle himself even points to the union between man and woman as being in that same paradigm of Christ's love and unity with the church. Now, this this gift that God has given to, to mankind, this, this marital um, intimacy, it is given to us for a number of reasons, obviously procreation, enjoyment and all, but also it's given to us as a laboratory for godliness. God wants us to be godly people, and, and to develop us into godly people, He needs to give us a context in which we can, we can understand and develop godly attributes. So, voila, here comes sex and marriage as that opportunity. It gives us this object lesson, and many of the ingredients that we need to have for a healthy relationship with God are, are also vital in a marriage faithfulness. We must have faithfulness to God, right? We must have faithfulness in a marriage. Intimacy. We should know our spouses and they should know us in ways that no one else knows us. And we should have that kind of intimacy with God. Exclusivity. There's only one wife. There's only one woman for me. There's only one man for for women. There's only one God for us. Dying to self. Marriages tend not to work when people refuse to die to self. The most common grounds for divorce, the one you hear co- constantly time and time again, is unreconcilable differences. What that simply means is nobody's dying to themselves. I'm not gonna die to myself, he's not gonna die to his self, and therefore, uh, we got a whole lot of unresolved things, the laundry's not getting done, the food's not being cooked, the, the money's not being earned, uh, and all of that comes with that. Uh, and, and then staying... God-centered. Obviously, in our relationship with God, we're God-centered. But buddy, if you want to be in a good marriage, you should both be God-centered. Because the moment you start to take your eyes off of God, you'd think, well, if I take my eyes off God, that means that I'll have a more clearly focused on my spouse. Never works that way. Take your eyes off God, where do they go? On yourself. Always on yourself. And in a marriage, having too much of Self in the viewfinder is always a recipe for difficulty. Now, it's interesting. I don't think it's any any uh, coincidence that sex, as God created it, is joining one's body with your spouse's body. It's no coincidence that that's the manner of sex, and yet the Bible tells us, and again, I'd ask you to turn over to um 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Bible tells us something very interesting about our bodies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 15, we read, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Ooh, stop right there. Our bodies are members of Christ. We are joined to Christ, not only spiritually, not only in our thought life, but in our bodies. How is that? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one. Ooh, we're starting to see the connection here. We're joined to Christ. If we're following God's example in who we marry, she or he is joined to Christ so that when we join ourselves together, we are joined in Christ. It is that three-strand cord that's not easily broken that the scripture speaks about. But he who join is joined to the Lord is one with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? Man, this is getting more serious as we go. It's not enough that we're joined to the Lord, but our bodies are the temple of the Lord. So what we do in the body is, is tantamount to worship. That if we conduct ourselves in our lives according to the purpose that God's given us, then our very existence glorifies him. On the other hand, if we engage in things, thoughts, etc., we're going to talk about that in a second here, that are not godly, then we might as well be Antioch, uh, uh, Antioch Epif- Jeff, help me. Yeah. The, the Syrian Grecian uh, <laughs> ruler who came into the temple threw a, a swine on the altar and, and butchered it there to desecrate the temple. And the temple was never the same until the Maccabees came along. But you, you understand what's going on there. It is a, it is a terrible, terrible, Offense to the temple of God. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So this is not a coincidence. Um, the two become one flesh. In that one flesh we honor and glorify God by virtue of the intimacy that God has exclusively uh, given to us. Hebrews 13:4 says, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. We are to live in the design that God has established. We are to stay within the order that God has created. Jesus himself set the standard. Jesus put himself under that standard when he said in John eight twenty nine, and he who sent me is with me, and the Father has not left me alone, for I always do that which pleases him. Now, I bite my tongue when I read that. Do I, can I say that? Can I say that? I always do what pleases God. I know I don't. And so these, this, this encouragement that Paul is giving to the Thessalonians, it's for you and me too. So we come to this, this foundation that I've just laid The foundation of fellowship with God. We're created for his good pleasure. We're created to magnify and glorify him. He's created unity between man and God. He then creates woman and he creates this beautiful unity between man and woman. And together, they they both live in the temple of the living God. And when they join themselves together in the intimacy of marriage, it's pleasing to God. It's pleasing to us. It's something that God has created to glorify him, and it's something he's given to us as a gift to enjoy. So we move to, so, what's so bad about fornication? <laughs> well, um, first of all, let's get terms right. In verse 3 in your Bible, and back in our text, where it says that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Um, some Bibles, uh, the word there is, is fornication rather than sexual immorality. Uh, but the word from which either of those terms is translated is the Greek word pornea, from which we get our word pornography. But this word pornea is much more comprehensive than what we think of as fornication or adultery or, or anything else, because it it pretty much covers the gamut of any kind of sexual behavior or even thought, as we'll see in a moment, that that uh, is occurring outside of the context of marriage. And so uh, pornea would encompass um, fornication. Fornication is a broader term than adultery. Fornication is sex between two people who are not married. Adultery is a kind of fornication that occurs when one of the parties or even both of the parties is married, but they're not married to each other. So that's how we understand the terms right now. Homosexuality would come under pornea. Uh, Pedophilia would come under pornea. Incest. Pornography itself would come under this, this term that's translated. I have the New King James, New King James which says sexual immorality. But, but the all-encompassing aspect of the definition of pornea is intended there. So it covers a wide gamut. And, um, and the interesting thing is, we, we think about all these things that I just enumerated there as physical manifestations or physical expressions of sexuality, But Jesus raised the bar, didn't he, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount because Jesus took what we would see as physical uh, expression of sexuality and he takes it inside the heart of the human being. This is what he said in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, which I know many of you know this well. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Obviously, that's part of the 10 Commandments. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now that's a that's that's a pretty rigorous standard. And by the way, there, it's it's a it's a matter of the heart, and God knows the heart. If a pretty woman walks by a man, and he glances over and sees a pretty woman, and his you know the first thing that comes into his mind is she's an attractive woman. That's not a sin. That's being human. The question is, what happens after that? You know, if you if you take that image and now all of a sudden you're writing the script for your next blockbuster movie in your mind, um, that's where it gets to be a problem. This is this is what we read in Mark 7, 21 and twenty three, for from within out of the heart of men proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness. We, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all of this, these evil things come from within and defile a man. See, we, we can never forget that we have a sin nature. We were born into that. And in that sin nature, we have the capacity to formulate these kind of thoughts. And those kind of thoughts always precede sinful acts. And this is, why, this is why Jesus made sure we understand that, look, the sin starts with, with the mind crafting the activity. And you might say, yeah, but what if I never act on it? What if I just daydream about it? What if I just think about it all the time? Well, that's kind of what pornography does, doesn't it? You don't touch another human body when you, when you view pornography. You look at images. Those images are obviously a lot more explicit than if you just saw a pretty girl go by and you start imagining things in your head. But hey, I didn't touch anybody. I didn't do anything. I just looked. And this is why that particular aspect of society right now has probably been at least as much, if not considerably more, responsible for destroying lives than even the drug epidemic that's going on right now. You see, in days gone by, uh, you had to be very deliberate in your exposure to things that that are sexual in nature, uh, whether they be things you can actually physically touch or just look. You had to be very, very deliberate. You had to go to a certain place. You had to buy a certain thing or you had to know somebody. All these things that that uh, happened in days gone by. Not today. Every kid's got a smartphone. Every kid's got a laptop or a, or a tablet. Every kid's got friends who've got those things. They're hearing more and more about sexuality in school. Th- things like that are being encouraged. Goodness gracious, we've got commercials now selling vaccines for sexually transmitted diseases to 10-year-olds, you say, goodness, why, why, why don't we have commercials talking about the, the virtues of abstinence? Instead, we're assuming they're going to have sexual relations at a young age. And so here's the remedy, big pharma to the rescue. Again, not. And so Jesus, even 2,000 years ago, knows how evil it can be to, to do anything that provokes your imagination that brings your mind to a place where you are essentially seeped in and committing the physical aspects of everything that we've described here. And this is the risk that he saw for the Thessalonicans, the Thessalonians. Here they are in the center of a sex-saturated culture. Everybody around them, people they know, are engaged in these behaviors, when, when, when Paul talked to the, uh, the church in Corinth, he named a number of these sexual sins, and then he said, and such were some of you before you were saved. And such were some of us before we were saved. And so we, we, live, in a, uh, we live in a very serious time for this sort of sin. Now, notice what Jesus says, or what Paul says uh, through the Holy Spirit in verse 8. He says, therefore, he who rejects this, in other words, he who rejects these commands that Paul has given to the Thessalonians and to us, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if a a Christian stumbles into a sexual sin, that they have denied God, they've lost their salvation or anything like that. But in order to do something that God has so clearly forbidden, we would have to be in a mindset at that time to despise God. That is to say, God, you've set an order. You've you've put an order in place. You've established a context in which a certain gift that you've given us is to be practiced. And I say, no, God. I'm doing this. So we are denying the sovereignty of God. That's despising God. We're stepping out of the order that God has created. That's despising God. And we are taking the, whole, the vessel of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God, and we are applying it elsewhere. And so the, the only thing we could say about that is we're despising God. Now, when we do that kind of thing, when we turn our attention away from what God has laid out for us. We are in danger of, of having a darkened heart. We are in danger of, of crusting over our heart and becoming insensitive to the Holy Spirit. Um, in, first, uh, in Romans chapter one, we read in verse 21 of Romans one, uh, one although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. You, you could say they despised God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, here he's speaking about humanity retreating from God, but I warn you that this is the same kind of, that can have the same kind of effect on us. If you're truly saved, it's not gonna take you out of God's hand, but it is going to create a darkened heart. And when you have a darkened heart, you'd be surprised how you move down a slippery slope that allows you to further accept things that are contrary to the will of God. It is what backsliding is all about. Is that once you're able to take that first gulp of poison, the second gulp, the third gulp, not as bad tasting, and before you know it, you want more of that. And this is this is the danger of the kind of sexual influences that are in uh, that are in our um, our lives. Sexual sin, sexual perversion, is. Satan's predictable answer to something that God loves, created for goodness, and declared good. The things that God loves, the things that God creates and declares good, are the things that Satan hates and does his his utmost to pervert and to use and to weaponize. And this is what's happened to sexuality. Satan has said, ah, here's something that God has given that helps human beings to understand intimacy with another, that helps people to understand the importance of fidelity, of exclusivity, of dying to self, of coming close like no other way you could come close to another human being in order to glorify God. I'm going to ruin that. I'm I'm going to dilute it. I'm going to pervert it. I'm going to twist it. I'm going to cause it to come out of God's order and corrupt human beings as a result. And that's what we see in our world. Now, the remainder of of the uh, verses that we have for today, verses 9 through 12, give kind of an anecdote, an antidote, in that if we want to keep ourselves from going down that path, we, we must have godly. Diversion. We, must, we must be parked in the spirit of God that we don't walk in the flesh. Listen to what he says here. Oh, I wanted to say one other thing. I wanted to bring out one other thing that's very important in this uh, first eight verses. Verse six, look at verse six for a moment. He says that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Defraud his brother or sister. What the Lord is saying here is that when we engage in sexual activity outside of the confines of marriage, we actually are harming the other person. You say, well, wait a minute. They were, they were willing, it was consensual. Maybe willing, but it doesn't mean it's right. When we present ourselves as an option for another person to engage in sexual activity that is out of God's design and boundaries for marriage. We defraud that person. It'd be like you invited them to your house for a steak dinner, and then you served them horse meat. uh, Unwitting uh, unwitting to them, but totally purposeful on your part. You know, for young men, but young women too, but young men, older men, if you Remember back in your days, your wild woolly days before the Lord took over your life. And you, and you had premarital sex with a woman. And I mean, this is, this is unnatural. It would be difficult. I don't recommend this for everybody. But, but apologies are owed. Apologies are owed. To go to that woman and say, I just want you to know I'm, I, I've given my life to Jesus Christ. And I reflect on the things that we did that were not godly. I, I, I come here and I apologize and repent of the fact that I had these relationships with you, this relation with you outside of marriage. For whatever harm that came from that to you, I am deeply sorry and regretful. Now, it's not always the possibility that you can express that in the context of your current marriage and all that, but I'm just saying the sentiment of, I harmed that person. They may have totally wanted it. They they may have totally wanted to be engaged in that. They they maybe just valued that, whatever it was you were doing or whatever. But from the perspective of a godly man and woman, we have to know what's told to us here in verse six, that we have defrauded that person. We We have led them to a place that, that is harmful to them. And the reason why we have a ministry at PSS is often because people continue to harm each other and themselves in engaging in premarital sex. Whatever God declares good, Satan seeks to pervert and he has done a masterful job. Now, godly diversions, uh, picking up in verse nine. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so, do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. What well, Paul is essentially advising these beautiful people is that focusing and concentrating yourself on living a godly life keeps you from the idleness that leads to a lot of these problems. Think about the situation with King David. The Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. And typically when the good weather season would come, a king would be out with his armies fighting for the kingdom. But for some reason, David laid back Things got too good for David, too comfortable. He's back at the palace. He's chilling out, spies Bathsheba, and the rest you know. It was the idleness of his time that created an opportunity for the enemy to draw him into sin. And and as I've said many times in here, we are the most over-entertained people in history. We've got so many options for entertainment we are, we are so prosperous everyone in this room would be in the single digits highest percentage percentile of wealth in all of the planet earth we have warm homes we have plenty of food even the food prices have gone up compared to what it was like to get food in, in times past food is plentiful our waistlines prove it I'll raise my hand um, we have entertainment options that, uh, that are, were unthinkable just a few short years ago And so with a lot of time and a lot of entertainment of the wrong kind, we find ourselves in these these situations. And we have to understand that applying ourselves to the work of the ministry, and I'm talking about ministry with a small m that includes all of us. What's our ministry? Well, start with the Great Commission. Start with, with fortifying the church. Start with helping those who are disadvantaged. Start with just having a heart for people as God does and doing something about it. Even those people right in your own family, in your extended family. We're to walk in the spirit so that we don't walk in the flesh. Philippians 2.13 told us it's God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Why, if we're shutting down God, if we're closing God out, if we're quenching the spirit because of the things that we're doing in our idle time, God is not going to be able to be as effective in in allowing us to both will and do for his good pleasure. Know where the triggers are in your life. I was very reticent to even speak on this subject because sometimes the very discussion of these kind of topics is a trigger for people who struggle with with sexual issues. And yet here's Paul doing it, and I felt like you know we're verse by verse, book by book. I'm not gonna deviate from the script, but I want you to know how important this is and know if you're struggling with something like this, Know where the triggers are. Know what sets you off. Know what what, what gets you starting down that road of excitement and then before you know it, you you throw caution to the wind and you're doing something that's deeply regretful. Know where those things are. Guard your child's mind with all your might. Don't don't listen to the siren song of society saying, well, they have to make up their own mind. They have to find their own way. Uh, No, they don't. No, they don't. We have a stewardship. We have a responsibility for our children. We need to pour into them everything we have. If when they become an adult at the age of majority and they want to make other decisions, that's on them. But while they are under our roof, while they are under the age of majority, it is our responsibility. And we are too many parents are whiffing at that pitch. Yes, indeed. Too many of us are whiffing at the opportunity to say no son no no daughter that's not what god would have for your life in fact it's not good for your life even from a practical point of view but most importantly it is not good for your life because you are a child of god you are god's creation created in his image for his purpose it's all about him it's not about you glorify him in your body we need to we need to hammer that message and I'm not going to say any more. This is hard. You can tell. This is hard. This is difficult to talk about. And this is very personal to every one of us. Everybody has their own approach to this whole area. And some carry a cross that's very, very heavy in this area. And I just want to say one more thing. See, there I went. You know, right now in our in our society, the gay agenda is gigantic it's like eclipsing the sun on every platform you can understand media uh, education government social entertainment you name it and it's coming into the church like never before and i just want to say as we talk about this whole area i just want us to be sensitive to one thing and this is something i only learned after a while folks who are in that lifestyle this isn't something they just decided casually to do there are folks in that lifestyle who, who love God and struggle against this and feel powerless over it. And this is the way all sexual sin works. Is, it, is it, it? The enemy uses it to tell you, look, your own body is telling you this. How could it be wrong? This is who you are. What can you say? What can you do? This is not an easy thing. And there is... There is the same answer that I would apply to a person in that lifestyle that I would apply to somebody struggling with any other kind of sin. And that is bring it to the foot of the cross. If you want me to describe for you a silver bullet answer to what you're struggling with, I got nothing but this. I have nothing but this. If you can approach the Lord and you say, God, here I am. You know me better than I know myself. You know what I've been doing. You know what I've been thinking. I want you in my life. Show me the way. Help me. That's a prayer that can solve and has solved the greatest bondages that people have ever been ensnared at, including homosexuality. But but we gotta be careful. I'm not saying we should do anything to affirm that lifestyle or, or to... Uh, I, look, I've got people that I love dearly in my family in that lifestyle. I don't love them one iota less. I pray for them. And... I pray that they would know I don't hate them. And we should make sure that people who are in the gay lifestyle know we don't hate them. We don't hate them. We do obey the word of God. We do spread the word of God. So let's pray for all of us right now. Father, Lord, this is a difficult area. You know our hearts, Lord. You know our thoughts and our actions. And we are accountable to you, Lord, in every fashion. And so, God, I pray that each and every day we would have the courage to surrender ourselves more and more each day. I pray for people who are struggling with sexual addiction, Lord. I pray for people who are in bondage, whose whose very bodies, Lord, are are leading them to places they do not want to go in their heart. And yet, there they are. I pray for our young people, Lord. They are just overwashed with a tidal wave of messaging. A tidal way of of affirmation of things that are decidedly ungodly. Help us, God. These are difficult things. We don't have the answers, but you have the answers. And so, Lord, pour your mercy and grace upon all of us, Lord, and especially our young folks. Fortify us in the truth. Let us live in the truth with gladness, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great day. (laughs) Be careful what you watch.